Hello, Michael Midas here. Welcome to the Mysterious Bluffs. Today I have a story for you about Becky, the owner of Becky's Coffee Shop, a popular hangout in the Mysterious Bluffs. Now Becky has a thing for serial killers, and it's not any old thing. Like she gained a fondness for them through movies and books and toured the home Jeffrey Dahmer grew up in and bought the special edition Ted Bundy basketball runners. If serial killer fans were an army, buying those runners would be like jumping from private to sergeant in one shopping trip. Becky also has books, t-shirts, and other fan paraphernalia, but she doesn't see the status in them. Her thing for serial killers is more like Stockholm Syndrome. She survived a run-in with a murderer and found herself attracted to him and others like him. The encounter happened in 2003 when she was 21 years old, a short while after she'd opened up Becky's Coffee Shop. Now starting a business at a young age and with no experience is a risky endeavor. And though her dad was a real estate agent who bought the property, the coffee shop required long hours of work and luck that it would catch on. The thing is, Becky had no fear of failure. She had no fear, period. In fact, her boyfriend was constantly ridiculing the coffee shop, assuring her it was destined for failure. And when she finally lost it, Becky slapped him across the face. You see, at five foot five, Becky only came up to his shoulders, and she was thin, and he was built. If he was an impulsive and violent person, he could have flung her to the ground in one swipe. And she hardly knew him, so before she slapped him, she didn't consider his uncharted temperament. Now some may say that slapping Fred was a dumb, immoral thing to do, but it was fearless. Becky also didn't consider her own threatening presence. Just before she lost it, her face turned from cute and inquisitive to ominous and controlling. Add in her short, fiery red hair and green eyes, and she was a thundering pixie. The anger made her risk-taking seem easy. In the end, he called Becky a few cuss words for the slap, and she ignored them. But the next day, she broke up with him. Becky has never hit anyone since that mishap. Instead, She's channeled her aggressiveness into the coffee shop. Originally, Becky's coffee shop was Bob's Coffee House. Then Bob retired and put his livelihood up for sale in late fall of 2002. It had a great location in the heart of town. The building had been well-maintained, but interested parties would say things like, the lot was too small for a pay parking lot. The area had plenty of clothing stores and restaurants, so opening another of either one was out, and no one would reconsider opening an independent coffee shop. The building sat on the market over a long, cold winter. Until one fine spring day, Becky was strolling by the building and noticed the for sale sign. All her thoughts stopped. The things mulling around in her head like, call the boyfriend, gotta do laundry. Her mind went joyfully blank. Becky looked over the shop and she'd never felt more comfortable. The shop was speaking to her, saying, 
You are the new Bob. The bright ideas popped into Becky's mind. She'd buy cute tables and chairs. She'd hang prints of lush jungle landscapes. And the coffee and snack menu would be filled with items from unique parts of the world. The menu had to outdo the departure display at an international airport. Becky whipped out her cell phone. She called her dad, announced that she's discovered her life's passion, a coffee shop, then begged him to invest in it. Being a sensible man who had been in business for decades, he chuckled a bit. He knew that Becky was a strong-willed woman who never begged for anything. And there she was, crying for an investment that was absurdly larger than paying her tuition for art school. He didn't like the art school idea, unless she completed a real estate course first. But after his chuckle, Becky's dad asked her for a business plan. This is where she excelled. She perfectly explained her vision for a coffee shop and that she'd hustle day and night to get customers through the door. Hmm. Her dad sighed. He said he'd think about it. A few hours later, he happened to drive by the coffee shop. So he stopped and looked it over. The building was detached and had large windows, but it was kind of small. Inside was space for about 25 people. There was a patio out front, too. You know what? The real estate market was kind of slow. If Becky messed up, he'd flip the coffee shop when the market was better. He called Becky and said he'd speak with the agent. Then said if she went out of business, her life was over. Becky cried with joy. Within a month, the keys were in her hand. The young entrepreneur didn't waste time making her mark. She tore down the old chip sign on the roof that read Bob's Coffee House and had it replaced with a blue and pink neon sign that said Becky's Coffee Shop. Goodbye, jelly donuts and Colombian roast. Hello, spring salad tortillas and eight varieties of fair trade coffee beans that only a Mormon missionary could pronounce. Now this is where the story gets bizarre. The coffee shop opened during the first week of June and business was better than expected. Becky had been dropping coupons in mailboxes, a strategy she believed could gradually win over customers. But most of the business came from passing pedestrians who had noticed the fresh decor inside the coffee shop and were excited to drop by. Becky had three servers. And one of them was Stacy McTavish, a sweet, bright-eyed 20-year-old with curly brunette hair. Stacy had just started a late afternoon shift on a warm, sunny Friday. Except for Becky's help, she was the only server. A few customers were itchy about the slow service time, and Stacy was on her second shift ever. The pressure frazzled her. She rushed almost uncontrollably. She nearly spilt a cappuccino on a pregnant woman. She accidentally sneered when a man complained that his Gouda wrap was stuffed with cheddar cheese. About seven in the evening, with a few hours to go, Becky pulled Stacy aside, snapped a few pictures of her, and announced that she was employee of the month. Stacy smiled. She was good at smiling, when in her heart, 
She was unnerved. She thought Becky was a hipster who was above an award like Employee of the Month. Stacy failed to realize that Becky had sales in her blood. Her father was a top-tier real estate agent, and sales come with motivation. But Employee of the Month wasn't the kind of motivation Stacy appreciated. Having her picture on the wall made her stomach turn. You see, Stacy had a friend, Denise, whose mother was an acting agent. Now Stacy had seen Denise get a few bit parts through her mother, and it seemed like a fun job. Stacy asked the mother, whose name is Janice, if she could sign up with her agency. Janice told Stacy that she had an interesting persona, but should get some acting lessons first. Stacy followed through, and soon she had additions here and there. And one of them was for Murphy's Muffler. Bingo! She got the role. She stood behind a counter and said to a man, Sir, your Murphy's Muffler is ready. Right on time. Vroom, vroom. It was easy. So easy that the commercial went into high rotation on primetime TV. If you watched news, major sporting events, movies of the week, or other popular programming, you knew that Stacy was the Murphy's Muffler girl. She kind of liked it, until she realized it wasn't as good as it seemed. Her own mother was jealous, saying she couldn't act, and they should have hired someone taller. At the grocery store, a crazy shopper called her the devil, then asked her for money. While she was jogging, a creepy old guy slowed his car down and shouted, Hey baby, got time to fix my muffler? Of course, Stacy's agent had more additions lined up for her. But Stacy had other plans. She moved from her parents' place to her own apartment. She dyed her hair, ignored her phone, and got a job at Becky's coffee shop. So, employee of the month wasn't Stacy's thing. She insisted Becky erase the photos and give the award to someone else. In her own words, she said, Becky, I've worked here for two shifts. I'd rather serve coffee than a fantasy. Hearing that, Becky's jaw dropped. Nobody tells her what to do. Her ass was on the line for the coffee shop. She said, Stacy, like it or not, congratulations. You're employee of the month. Stacy shivered with anxiety. She was desperate to escape her public persona, the muffler girl and employee of the month was a step in the wrong direction. Until Becky snapped the photos, Stacy had been convinced serving was the right decision. Not one customer had gazed at the muffler girl and said, vroom, vroom. And why would they? Stacy applied at the coffee shop for a specific reason. It was a small joint with funky decor and menu items that doubled as tongue twisters. The customers wouldn't recognize her, they were too hip for primetime TV. They'd rather watch a documentary on Japanese basket weaving. Stacy tore off her apron and said to Becky, I hope you find the perfect employee of the month. And she walked out. Becky was caught without a server on a busy Friday night. The sun was setting and the customers were chatting louder. The coffee shop owner shed a few tears, but the crying didn't last long. 
she forced Stacy into the back of her mind, whipped out her cell phone, and asked herself which future employee of the month would drop everything and hustle over to Becky's coffee shop. The first call went to Melissa, a dreamy socialite in her late 20s. Her life was a mishmash of service jobs and parties, so the odds were slim she would come running on a Friday night. And let's face it, Becky did not like her. They worked a four-hour shift together, and she found they weren't connecting. Melissa didn't understand who the coffee shop was named after. She did her job too well for Becky's liking. And customers knew her by name, which made Becky feel like something was missing in her life. A name tag. When Melissa said hello on the phone, Becky could hardly hear her because of background chatting on either end. Becky slipped out the back door and asked Melissa if she was available to come in. Melissa said, sorry, can't make it. But how's the yacht club? Becky said, excuse me, I'm at the coffee shop. Melissa said, the next time you invite me to a party, send an invitation first. Bye. Becky called her last server, Jacob, who had worked many hours during the first week of business, including a shift that day. She felt bad about asking him to come back. When he answered the phone, there was screaming in the background. Becky asked him where he was, and he yelled at a protest rally. Becky hung up the phone. The only cause on her mind was serving customers. You know what? Jacob wasn't her last option. She almost hired Wendy Greenwich. Becky really liked her, but thought she wasn't quite suited to be a server. The middle-aged woman had a couple of kids, which might make her less flexible, and her attitude was plain. When they met for an interview, she never spoke about the excitement of a brand new coffee shop. She seemed set in her ways, failing to give the impression that brighter and better things were coming. Becky called Wendy and offered her a job if she could show up right away. Unfortunately, Wendy couldn't do it. She just finished a shift at Waldo's Army Supply and was exhausted from selling gum boots, camel gear, and duck collars. She needed to spend time with her kids. Becky returned inside the coffee shop and was about to go table to table and announced that she'd be closing early due to unforeseen circumstances. Before reaching the first table, she was stopped by a gentleman who offered her a warm, empathetic smile. Well, he had the air of a gentleman until Stacy looked at him with closer attention. The man was of average height and build and had frizzy black hair. He was wearing a beige linen suit, but his face seemed subhuman. His charcoal eyes were almost smoldering. His tiny nose was bovine. He had a devilishly triangular chin and moon-gray skin. Subhuman or not, his face charmed Becky. And she couldn't grasp why. She said, I'm sorry, sir. We're closing soon. The man stepped closer to her and said, I saw what happened with Stacy. And you deserve better. And she needs a lesson for wasting your time. Becky said, what kind of lesson? Allow me to be the lesson, he said. I have served in the finest coffee houses of London, Paris, and New York. May I offer my assistance 
until you replace Stacy with a competent server. Becky passed her eyes by several tables and spotted many uptight, neglected faces. She couldn't resist the man's offer. That sounds great, she said. But what exactly is the lesson? He said that Stacy is worthless and should never serve again. The coffee shop owner snickered a bit. I get it, she said. When Stacy picks up her paycheck, I say that she was replaced the same night by a super server. What's your name? William, he said. Becky brought William behind the counter and gave him an apron and an order pad. He slipped off his linen blazer, slid on the apron, and promptly picked up a tray of orders that Stacy had abandoned. William was soon flying between tables and the counter. He was taking orders with ease, diligently passing them on to Becky, then scooping them up the second they were done. The cafe was running smoother than ever before, and Becky couldn't wipe the satisfied grin off her face. She was downright comfortable with William. For all his talent, he was modest and mature. Unlike Melissa, who drove Becky near Batty with pompousness, by 11 o'clock, the last order had been served. At the counter, Becky and William had a moment to breathe. Becky asked him where he was from. William smiled cordially and said he wasn't up for a personal chat right then. He was a bit edgy from the busy night and would rather they find a quiet park to unwind under the moonlight. Becky nodded empathetically. Once in a while, she went with friends to a secluded park at night. But no way was she going with William. She said, if you like, we can talk on the patio. William frowned and said, you trusted me with your customers and I did the best I could to serve them. And now you won't trust me with yourself? Do you trust your customers less than yourself? Becky said, you're still a stranger. William's face turned lava red. He undid his apron and threw it on the ground then snatched the tip jar from the counter, grabbed his blazer from the closet, and rushed out the back door, leaving Becky to clean up the coffee shop on her own. She said to herself, Too bad he left so fast. I kind of liked him. It was just past midnight. Becky tossed her cleaning rag into the sink. Time to go home. She avoided sitting down in case she fell asleep. She almost locked up without turning off the lights. You fool, she said to herself outside the front door. Dragging herself to the light switch, a barrage of questions came to her. What if William was a deranged killer lurking outside ready to pounce? What if she couldn't escape him? How would he do the evil deed? With a knife, a rope, or his bare hands? Would he scream with rage? Or would he chuckle in delight? The intrigue tingled inside Becky, giving her a second wind. She was wide awake again. On the quiet stroll to her apartment, Becky gazed down alleyways, gleefully fearing that William might jump out at her. But the ten-block journey ended uneventfully, and Becky went to bed almost disappointed that William had controlled himself.
The next morning, about 8 a.m., Becky arrived at the coffee shop. It was a rainy day, so she was pretty wet. She left home without an umbrella and sped through the drizzle, barely avoiding puddles. Inside the shop, the clammy entrepreneur hung up the open sign and beelined to the coffee machine. She ready to pot a fresh brew, hoping the scent would drift outside and lure customers in before nine. This was when Jacob arrived and the shop was supposed to open. The one guy who came in was dressed in a yellow rain jacket and holding a wet chihuahua. He ordered a green tea. Jacob arrived at 9 a.m. sharp, ready to go. He was a no-frills, hard-working guy, and the caffeine seekers followed right behind him. The morning rush lasted until noon, when thunderstorms hit the area and business slowed down. Becky grabbed a table and reinvestigated her stack of job applications. This time, going through them, she wasn't as picky about the cool factor of the candidates. Becky was 0 for 2 on hipsters. Actress Stacy walked out, and socialite Melissa was unconditionally excited about herself. She had to go. Becky intended to replace them with servers that feared God. She needed a few Jacobs to be grunts in the trench. Revisiting the applications spruced up Becky's mood. She readily separated the best candidates from the paper pile. Joey Wasnowski was the first person she planned to call. Joey was a first-year apprentice at plumbing school, and his work experience included Burger Queen. And he was a good Samaritan, volunteering at the Mysterious Bluffs annual telethon. He was in charge of the coat check and bottled water. As Becky continued her employee search, she was approached by a dark, mid-sized Caucasian man with salt-and-pepper curly hair. Along with his beige trench coat, his hair was dripping from the storm. Without a word, he sat down beside Becky and observed her intensive scrutiny of the job applications. Becky carried on indifferent to the man's presence, convincing him that she was numb to distraction. She turned to him and said, You won't like to work here. The man dropped his eyebrows, produced a badge, and said, I'm Detective Iverson. I have some unfortunate news for you. Okay, you don't want to work here, she said. The detective looked straight at Becky, with a hint of disgust in his face. Stacy is no longer with us, he said. Becky absorbed the news with an empty face that one could assume stood for shock and denial. But inside her, a deeper issue was holding her back from reacting. Why is this about Stacy? she thought. It's my coffee shop. Becky forced herself to look the detective in the eye. Sorry to hear that, she said. The detective produced a plastic bag with a note inside it, then laid it on the table. You know anything about this? he asked. He pushed the bag towards her. Becky read the note. It said, Call terrorist Becky for a final paycheck. Underneath that, Becky's phone number was written. The detective nodded his head shamefully. Stacy's dead, he said. <laughs> Becky laughed nervously. <clears throat> How'd she die? In a horrifying way, he said. I'd call it terrorism. <laughs>
The detective then produced a Polaroid photo of a cold, stiff female hand laying on the ground. Beside the hand was a tip jar with small change spilled around it. Was it worth it? He asked. Becky's face lit up like a tiki torch. William snatched the tip jar, she said. Who's William? He asked. Last night, Stacy quit, and a customer offered to help. His name was William. He seemed nice, so I let him work. But at closing time, he invited me to a park. It was almost midnight, and I said no. He lost his temper and took the tip jar and left. How would he know where Stacy lives? The detective asked. He doesn't, she said. Unless he peeked in my address book. Show it to me, he said. Becky led him to the prep area behind the counter. On the rear wall, beside the sink, stood a small filing cabinet. The address book was lying on top of it. Becky grabbed it and turned to the page with Stacy's address. A business card fell out and landed on the ground. Detective Iverson swiped it up and looked it over. On it, a name was printed in an elegant handwriting font. Slippery William. I know this guy, he said. Who is he? she asked. He's on Interpol's most wanted list. They call him the high-maintenance waitress killer. Becky's eyes marveled with enchantment. It's a compliment if he thinks I'm high-maintenance. The detective shook his head in disgust. Murder isn't a compliment. You know why this fiend killed Stacy? His body count is in the double digits. He thinks he owns the world. He's getting cocky. He's getting sloppy. He's going from caviar to bird food. Becky's face reddened with dismay. I don't serve bird food. And I'll bet some birds eat caviar. Seagulls, they eat anything. The detective thought about what he said, then apologized and promised to be more open-minded. In the afternoon, a forensic team investigated the coffee shop, but found nothing because the site had been thoroughly cleaned after Slippery William left. The killer once again lived up to his nickname and slipped away. Never heard of until a few years later when he abducted and murdered a waitress at a wine and cheese party in Latvia. As the case was ongoing, Becky learned little information about Stacy's death and only from the news. This is what she knew. A witness had seen Slippery William and Stacy chatting at the outside entrance door of her apartment. The killer most likely posed as a sympathetic co-owner of the coffee shop and gave Stacy the tip jar, then somehow convinced her to bring him to her apartment. Exactly what happened inside her apartment was never released. But Becky researched Slippery William on the internet and found out that he was a multiple method killer who had used weapons like knives, guns, and nylon stockings. Becky also found his fan site and ordered the Slippery William calendar, which featured pictures of his victims for the months they were killed. Becky learned all 39 of their names and paid special attention to the ones that reminded her of herself. 
Becky's thing for serial killers thrived into a permanent pastime. She bought books and t-shirts and joined an unsolved murder club. The members speculated who done it, using leads and evidence, and Becky was considered an expert opinion, as she had met Slippery William in person. Thanks for listening to The Mysterious Bluffs.